Hello, I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. Tonight, we will explore the Catholic Church's clear and consistent teaching against racism. We'll also talk about what critical race theory means and how it has been invading many aspects, in fact, practically all aspects of our society. It purports itself to be the antidote to racism and injustice. But we're going to ask if it is the right solution. Our guest tonight will share with us why Catholics should oppose critical race theory, precisely because their own Catholic faith stands against racial injustice of any kind and reaffirms all people's human dignity, not part of society over against another. So please welcome the author of a brand new book called All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. Our guest is a professor of philosophy at Pasadena City College in Pasadena, California, and the author of a number of other wonderful, wonderful books. Please welcome Dr. Edward Facer. Dr. Facer, welcome. It's good to have you back. Good to be back, Father. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I uh, would encourage our audience to take a look at one of your earlier books, um, The Last Superstition, in which you took on the professional atheist industry and you addressed the arguments of their atheism uh, very clearly and you also presented the positive arguments about the existence of God. And you did a wonderful job in that. Now, I really want to uh, tell our audience and you that I very much appreciate the work that you have done on the issue of opposing racism as well as critical race theory from a Catholic perspective. So this is a, a wonderful book that more of our people should have. It'll be very useful in addressing this issue. To get into this new book, I would like you to, first of all, give us a bit of background. You opened the book up talking about the church's early response in the 1400s, 1420s and 30s, against enslaving people uh, and how that developed. Give us that start as a, a, an early basis for the anti-racist theories. Yes, yeah, so uh, a common assumption that's made in discussions of racism and its relationship to the history of the Catholic Church is that somehow the Church had to catch up with the secular world only by, say, the late, late 19th century or maybe even Vatican II, and that somehow before that time the Church condoned slavery, 
the African slave trade, condoned uh, mistreatment of uh, Native Americans and so on. And nothing could be further from the truth. As I document at length in the book, there's a consistent 500-year history from the very beginnings of the colonial period in uh, the Western Hemisphere, from the be very beginnings of the slave trade and the uh, Europe European powers, um, colonization of the New World. There was consistent papal condemnation of mistreatment of the native peoples of the Americas. There was consistent uh, papal condemnation of the enslavement, stripping the, the peoples of their liberties and of their rights and of their property and so forth. Uh, and an insistence that uh, all human beings of whatever race, whatever, whatever ethnicity, have the same um, rights under natural law, have the same dignity uh, as being called to redemption through Christ and so forth. It's true that um, for a long time, uh, Catholics resisted this teaching and disobeyed it, just as today Catholics resist Catholic teaching on all kinds of things, the Church's teaching on sexual morality, for example. But or what's really abortion. crucial to understand is that, or on abortion or any number of other things, but it's crucial to understand that that was the Church's teaching consistently, and you had Pope after Pope who condemned uh, the cruelty that was being inflicted on the peoples of uh, the Americas, and also what was uh, happening to peoples in Africa, and that uh, even though uh, there were there were many who flouted this teaching, who rebelled against it, popes increasingly had to become ever more uh, bellicose, you might say, in their condemnations of it, precisely because people were resisting it. But it's not because people were going along with Catholic teaching that later had to change. It was because they were resisting what had always been Catholic teaching on matters of racism and the enslavement of native peoples uh, from the very beginning that these things uh, became a problem in uh, modern Western civilization. I, I think it's also worth noting that <clears throat> slavery had effectively disappeared in Europe uh, under the influence of the church. In the 800s, uh, a pope had ordered the people of Sardinia to release their slaves. And in England, uh, after its uh, Christianization, the bishops convinced the kings of England to make slavery illegal. And pretty much slavery did not exist in Europe. Uh, it did in the Muslim world. It's part of uh, Muslim Sharia law that allows slavery, and they couldn't change that. Uh, in their law. And the African slave trade had gone on between Africa and the Ottoman Turkish Empire for hundreds of years before the Europeans got involved in the African slave trade. But it was put under automatic excommunication. And as Pope Eugene IV wrote in 1436, that the excommunication was there with no possibility of forgiveness until the slave trader set free the slaves and restored their property. That was, that was the way it was written. So this is a background, and that was repeated every century, every, all the way up until slavery ended in the Christian world in the 1880s with the empire of Brazil setting free its slaves. So that's the history. Exactly, yeah. And, and one of the um, mistakes people make when discussing this 
is that they fail to draw a distinction between different practices that have been called slavery over the course of the mm -hmm. centuries. And they think that because some of these practices were not condemned as intrinsically evil by the Church, that it follows that the Church somehow approved of slavery in general. And that's simply not the case. So what most people think of when they hear the word slavery is what's traditionally called chattel slavery, which involves the complete ownership of another human being, as if the human being were merely an animal or a piece of property or what have you. And it's what people usually think of when they think of the African slave trade, for example, or the way that Native Americans were treated uh, by some of the colonial powers or the way that um, uh, African Americans were treated uh, before the abolition of slavery in the United States. Now, that sort of thing was always condemned by the church as intrinsically evil, and in the modern period, again, was has been condemned consistently for 500 years. But there are other practices, servitude of a lesser kind, uh, which the church allowed was not intrinsically evil, uh, even if uh, the consensus formed that it was still too morally hazardous to continue accepting. These would be practices like, for example, what's called penal servitude, which involves uh, making someone uh, a servant out of, uh, as a matter of punishment for a crime. The idea being that, well, if in punishment for a crime you could imprison someone, then you could, by extension, require them to labor. Uh, or there was what's called indentured servitude, which in involves uh, someone becoming a servant out of payment of a debt. Now, if ordinary uh, debts are not evil, and if punishments of, of uh, like imprisonment and the kind are not intrinsically evil, then the thinking was, well, an extension of those sorts of things as punishment would not necessarily be evil either. The problem, though, is that those practices, one problem anyway, is that those practices can very easily degenerate into chattel slavery if um, one is not careful, and it's very hard to be careful, especially when these things become social institutions. Mm -hmm. So even those lesser forms of servitude, eventually the Church came around to the view that in practice they just simply should not be tolerated and should be abolished. But those are different from chattel slavery, which is what we usually think of when we hear the word slavery, and that the Church has, has been consistent in condemning from the beginning. Yep. And, you know, it's uh, something that uh, has, still gets practiced. The, the say, uh, penal uh, slavery is practiced in places like China. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people participate in that uh, when they buy certain athletic shoes and other products. Um, this is one of the problems that goes on, and it, it's simply a, a, a wrong mm. thing to do, especially when people are imprisoned immorally, as in the case of uh, the Uyghurs of Western China. So these are, these are problems we have to pay attention to and oppose. But there, there's something else, and you make a, some good points uh, in your book about how slavery in the, uh, the Americas, uh, in particular our own nation, United States, uh, developed in some really horrible ways, you know, that this uh, ended up uh, div so dividing our country uh, that uh, eventually we went to a war in which about as many people died in our war between the states has died in the 250 years of the Crusades. I mean, it's just about the same number. Uh, and that in four years that happened, it, this had a lot of terrible elements to it, including the, even after the war, the racism that created Jim Crow laws. African-Americans could not buy firearms. 
They weren't allowed to have them. They were separated from Caucasian people. They couldn't marry Caucasians if they wanted. All kinds of things uh, were uh, added on even after slavery. Uh, address some more of those elements of modern racism in our democratic republic. Well, these are the sorts of things that reflect an attitude that somehow uh, some races don't have the same basic rights or dignity as others do. And that's something that uh, not only the church has, not only has the church consistently condemned that idea, but as I argued at the beginning of the book, the church's condemnation of that sort of attitude is rooted in considerations that go much deeper than the kind that are usually uh, brought up in contemporary discussions of racism. So when people talk about racism and racial differences and so forth, they usually leave things at a fairly superficial biological level. But the church's condemnation of racism is, is rooted in considerations that go deeper than anything that biology could either establish or undermine. So as I emphasize in the book, for example, uh, part of the foundation of the church's condemnation of racism is the idea that all human beings share a common rational nature. We're rational creatures in the way that non-human animals are not, in the way that plants and stones and, and other non-living things are not. Um, but our rationality, according both to Catholic theology and also traditional philosophy and the tradition of thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, and so forth, um, rationality is an immaterial, non-physical, non-material aspect of human nature. It's something that we know about through philosophical arguments, uh, traditional arguments for the immortality of the soul, for example. And therefore, it's not the sort of thing that can be either established or undermined by, uh, by empirical science or by biology in particular. Um, but on um, traditional natural law theory, it's our rational nature that grounds the fact that we are moral agents and as moral agents, we have certain rights and duties under natural law. So since we all have the same common rational nature, we also have the same uh, moral uh, dignity and the same rights and obligations under natural law. And again, since that's grounded in philosophical considerations that go deeper than anything biology has to tell us, um, it's got a more secure foundation. The other can half I, of can the I give a, kind of, uh, On that topic, yeah. let me give a quote from your book, if I may, uh, where you wrote... Whatever biological and cultural differences may exist between the races, nature and grace alike ensure that their basic rights and duties are the same. This is the deep and unshakable foundation for the church's condemnation of racism. So I, I know that you, you put it so well in that quote, and uh, this is going up against not only some of the obvious uh, racist ideas of, say, the Ku Klux Klan or National Socialism in Germany, the Nazi Party, uh, but even against scientists like uh, Charles Darwin, who in his Descent of Man, his second large work, said that Africans are a species in between the human and the ape and that they need to be eliminated the way you would eliminate an inferior <clears throat> breed of cattle. This is patently false. And it, it gave a scientific veneer that was simply untrue. And uh, in fact, 
supplied the Nazis with scientific, quote, evidence. Um, the church rejected that and rejects any other such racist notions about inferiority of Africans or any other people. Yes, yeah, so that's a good example of how uh, unstable, you might say, the foundations are for a condemnation of racism if you're looking at things from an entirely secular and uh, materialist point of view. Uh, you know, the modern uh, listener might say, well, but we don't have to agree, agree with what Darwin said about that, and that's true. But the problem is that if the condemnation of racism goes no deeper than what we can know uh, through biological science, it's always subject to potential challenge from future uh, empirical research, from future biological research. But that's not the case from the Catholic point of view, precisely because the uh, condemnation of racism is grounded in part in what I, in that quote that you uh, referred to earlier, I referred to as nature, human nature as rational creatures, which we know about through philosophical arguments rather, that which go deeper, a deeper level of reality than the, the biological or empirical arguments. The other foundation of the church's condemnation, I refer to this in that quote as well, is grace, meaning that uh, the church teaches that all human beings of whatever race, whatever ethnicity, uh, are called to the same redemption from sin and are uh, can have applied to them the same sacrifice of Christ through which we're redeemed and through which the door is open to us uh, to heaven and to the beatific vision. Same common call to everybody, just as we have the same origin in Adam, we have the same supernatural destiny, and that also confers upon us a certain dignity and certain rights which are universal. Yeah. And here we have a theological foundation to supplement the philosophical foundation, both of which, again, cannot be either established or undermined by empirical science because they appeal to considerations that go deeper than anything empirical, empirical science could, could tell us. So the, the irony here is that people think, well, the church is kind of a latecomer to this. Uh, but in fact, not only has the church been teaching the evil of racism for centuries and the evil of chattel slavery for centuries, but also provides a much deeper foundation for the condemnation of those things than the secular world uh, does or could. Yes, I, I think that that's a key element. Now, one the the other aspect of your book. I mean, while on one hand you give the church's clear teaching against racism and enslavement, and consistent and longstanding, you also give a critique mm -hmm. for a problem that is showing itself in recent years, namely critical race theory. What is that and what's the difficulty you find with it? I would characterize critical race theory as first and foremost the idea that racism absolutely permeates every nook and cranny of Western society. Every institution, cultural, legal, moral, religious, and even into the psyches of every uh, citizen of Western society, including those who think of themselves as opposed to racism. That is to say, it's a rather paranoid, uh, I would say, an extreme characterization of racism. And it hides behind the rhetoric of anti-racism because naturally any decent person, when hearing the phrase, uh, the expression anti-racism, would think, well, who could, who could fail to be anti-racist? I mean, we all have to be opposed to racism for the kinds of reasons that I gave a moment ago. And that's true enough. But critical race theory says a lot more than just that. It's its characterization of racism, which is extreme, that has no empirical foundation, no evidential basis, 
Um, and that leads to a kind of um, paranoia about uh, all social institutions and all social interactions with other human beings that is guaranteed uh, massively to exacerbate tensions between races rather than to, um, to soothe them. Um, now, this uh, thesis is taken to have a number of implications and ways in which this alleged racism manifests itself. So you have, for example, the idea of microaggressions and the idea of implicit bias. What's that all about? Well, a the idea of a microaggression is the idea of an act of racism that's so subtle that the person who commits it isn't even aware of doing it. So a, you know, a stock example would be, say, somebody, a, a jogger passes another jogger of another race in the park, say, and doesn't smile. And the idea is that, well, you see, this is really an act of racism. This is the, the jogger's implicit, maybe even unknown to himself, hostility to people of other races that leads him not to smile or to acknowledge the other jogger. So, you know, for this sort of analysis, you can never just be having a bad day or be preoccupied. Everything is seen as somehow really a, a manifestation of some deep and, and hidden racism that's so deep and hidden, you don't even know you're manifesting it. That would be one sort of example of this paranoid mindset that I'm talking about. Another would be the idea that every inequity as such is, uh, per, is per se racist or as such racist. So, for example, if you have 10% of the population of a certain society is of a certain race, but less than 10% of uh, that racial group is represented in a certain profession, like stockbrokers or something, then that, so claim popularizers of critical race theory like Ibram X. Kendi, that is uh, of its very nature racist, and there's no other way to characterize it. And if you say, well, couldn't it be the result of something other than racism, such as cultural differences between groups? The idea would be even to suggest that is itself racist. So that's another manifestation of this idea that racism is everywhere. I'll give you one further example. When most people think of anti-racism, when they think of fighting racism, they think of the traditional civil rights movement, which was committed to ideals like the idea that everybody should be judged as an individual rather than a member of a race, that governmental policy should be colorblind, uh, not treat people as members of races, but just as human beings that there is a common standard, a, an objective standard of rationality that we all have a share in, that we can appeal to rational argumentation to settle our disputes. That all individuals have, just, as being, just by virtue of being human, certain individual rights to life, liberty, property, and so on. All of that is condemned by critical race theory writers as itself just a manifestation of racism and something that holds in place racist power structures white power, white supremacy, white privilege, and so on and so forth. The idea of treating people as individuals or being colorblind, critical race theory says no. We have to treat people as members of groups. We have to tailor policy so that it's, it's radically color conscious rather than colorblind. We have to treat this idea that there's objective rational standards as itself a manifestation of just whiteness and instead, we need to appeal to the narratives of grievance, of persecution, of experiences of oppression that uh, people of color might express, whether or not they can give any sort of empirical evidence for this. So there's a kind of radical subjectivism and relativism. In fact, even the idea mm -hmm. that there is sort of common universal standards is rejected by writers like Kendi as somehow racist. And he says that cultural relativism is itself a part of being anti-racist. The, and by cultural relativism uh, and relativism in general, their position 
is that there is no such thing as an objective truth or reality. Or, in the case of some relativists, if there is objective pr truth, no one can know it. That's a basic thing. So <clears throat> then truth becomes relative to what I believe it is. It's my truth, and you have your truth. And in such a way, I've been talking about this for the last 20 years on this show, that when you have a relativistic point of view, I have my truth, you have yours, how do you resolve differences of opinion? For instance, when two cars meet at an intersection, if it's, I have my view of what the green light means and you have your view what the red light means, how do you resolve that? Well, in the relativistic world, a Humvee goes ahead of a Yugo. That the bigger car goes ahead of the small one. And that's because might makes right. That issue of power making the decision about what's right and wrong is exactly one of the points you bring up frequently in your book, that the critical race theorists understand very strongly they have to get power to yes. overcome racism. The anti-racists have to have power against the inherently racist uh, a society, and that's the only, and that's what they're seeking. Would that be an accurate depiction? That's absolutely correct, and it's a it's an inevitable consequence of this kind of relativism that mm -hmm. critical race theorists are committed to. You often see uh, writers in this tradition saying things like, you know, that we we never look at reality objectively, but on, always and only through the through the lens of race. We can't sort of step outside our our racial perspective and see things from a neutral point of view and thereby appeal to common standards that all races have access to to settle their disputes. Well, if that's true, then what is there that's left uh, to settle disputes? There's really nothing more than an appeal to power. Who has the more power? Who has the bigger stick? Who has the bigger gun? Who has uh, the more um, overwhelming political power? That inevitably is what human relations boil down to is uh, conflicts, power conflicts between inherently opposed races. And you get writers uh, in this tradition who are quite explicit about this. So I mentioned Ibram Kendi as a popularizer uh, of this uh, set of ideas in, in books like his book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he's quite explicit that he says, look, um, anti-racism, he says, cannot be about changing minds and hearts. That he thinks is a waste of time. It's about gaining power. Uh, it's about gaining control of the political institutions and other institutions of influence and simply imposing the agenda on those who disagree. Uh, and that's a natural conclusion to draw when you don't believe that there's such a thing as objective standards uh, of rational persuasion in the first place. It's going to boil down to um, uh, power conflicts between inherently hostile groups. Now, how anybody could think this is going to lead to better race relations, I have no idea, except that I don't think that the people who actually construct this ideology, as opposed to 
naive readers who kind of gobble this stuff up and think that they're expressing their virtue by buying an Ibram Kendi book or a Robin D'Angelo book. The people who actually write this stuff and formulate these ideas, I think they're quite aware that it's not uh, likely. In fact, it's unlikely to uh, produce um, uh, better race relations. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for conflict. And that's one respect in which it's reminiscent of Marxism. It's not the same thing as Marxism. You know, defenders of critical race theory always like to complain, oh, you're just smearing us by calling us Marxists. Okay, it's not the same thing as Marxism, that's true, but it's influenced by certain Marxist themes, and it also has certain similarities uh, to Marxism. And one of, the, one of them is the idea that at the end of the day, it can't be rational persuasion, but power that has to affect social change. For the Marxists, that's because we can't sort of get outside economic lenses and we can't transcend our class and see what's true. We only see things through our class interests. Critical race theory just takes that and replaces it with race. We can't see things except through a racial lens. In this way, uh, if there's any 20th century ideology that critical race theory is reminiscent of, it's not Marxism as much as national socialism or nor Nazism. Now, I hesitate to say that because it's very easy to play the pin the Nazi uh, tail on the donkey sort of game, and it's, it's overdone. There's no doubt about that. However, in this case, the shoe fits because where are you going to find another ideology in recent political history that says that we can't get outside racial lenses and that races are inherently hostile to one another? That's the core of Nazi racial ideology. Uh, and it's it's quite ironic that this movement that that um, presents itself as if it were inherently anti-racist ends up adopting a view of human life and of human social relations that bears such a, a, a frankly you know shocking and disturbing similarity to uh, you know one of the most murderous ideologies of the 20th century. And the other parallel is the <clears throat> emphasis on gaining power. You hear Hitler's speeches. <clears throat> you know, that calling for power is exactly what Hitler did. And he was himself professedly a relativist. Morals were relative to the goals of the Third Reich. And everything that helped promote the Reich was okay, so that we gain power over everyone in the world. That, again, is a, ne a necessary consequence <clears throat> of relativistic thinking. You want power. And that is, that's why it's not that they want to kill Jews, though you, know, you still hear some anti-Jewish rhetoric coming back out every so often. But they, they still see the world through a race-based lens, which they admit, and it's one group against another. We have to get the power, and we have to take it away from you. Now, one thing that I'm afraid we also have to deal with is we have to take a break. So we're going to come back in just a couple of minutes mm -hmm and continue this discussion, so please stay with us.
Welcome back. We are discussing a new book called All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. And it's written by our guest, Edward Fazer. You can get a copy of this book, and I strongly recommend it, uh, by going to EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com, where it is item number 45801. Uh, and we've just been discussing what critical race theory is. And Ed, I'd like to um, just bring up a point that you mentioned in your book, that uh, the way that critical uh, race theory teaches that white people can respond is solely by constantly admitting guilt for being white and for participating in racism and for being a racist. Is, is that basically their solution to what people should do? Yes, it's that plus um, uh, open-ended submission to discriminatory policies that discriminate against whites as somehow having been uh, the beneficiaries of white privilege and the, her the heritage of racism and so on. So you get in uh, writers like Ibram Kendi, who's one of the popularizers of critical race theory, uh, statements to the effect that um, the heartbeat of racism is denial, denying you're a racist. That itself is taken as evidence that you're racist. And the heartbeat of anti-racism is confession. And this confession is something that must be repeated. Uh, as another popularizer of critical race theory, uh, Robin DeAngelo says in her book, White Fragility, the work of white people will never be done. They have to continuously unsettle themselves, make themselves uncomfortable, uh, search their psyches for ever deeper strata of hidden, un, uh, uh, heretofore unknown uh, levels of racism and so on and so forth. So there's this endless guilt, uh, endless confession that goes along with it. And then writers like Kendi insist that the only remedy is discriminatory policies uh, that simply have to keep being implemented until all inequities are erased. So as long as there's any inequity, any differential out economic outcomes, for example, uh, among the races, this can only be due to racism, and that means we need more discrimination. We need to double down on the discrimination against uh, the, the so-called um, uh, beneficiaries of white privilege, whiteness, white supremacy, all these kind of buzz phrases. Okay. All right. Good. So that's their response, and that's what they teach. What I'd like to do, Ed, if we may, is uh, I have a couple guests. Uh, both of them are good, close friends of mine. Uh, and they have some questions that they'd like to address. The first is Bishop James Lowe. Bishop Lowe is uh, the pastor of a church here in Irondale, Guiding Light Church. Uh, he's founder of, of that church. And he's also a survivor of the terrorist bombing by the Ku Klux Klan at the 16th Street Baptist Church. He was childhood friends with the three girls that were killed in that, the four, four girls that mm -hmm. were killed in that attack. And uh, he himself was, was obviously hurt uh, seriously, but survived, obviously. So, um, Bishop, uh, just given that background and your own involvement in 
active work against racism. Uh, you had a, a couple <laughs> questions for Dr. Fazer. Yes, uh, one of which was that <clears throat> when you bring when you brought up 16th Street bombing, that went on. The church was against all of that, but the church took no very little action that was positive there. I've heard about uh, the church and condemning racism, but what will be the church's response to CRT? It seems very anti-Christ. So how should the church respond to uh, the proponents of CRT? Okay. All right. Ed? Yeah. So I think the the first step is that the Catholics and the church more generally need to inform themselves both about what critical race theory says, but also what traditional Christian teaching on the matter of racism itself says. And so that's why my book has that subtitle. It's a critique uh, both of racism and of critical race theory. And so people need to see, on, on the one hand, that there are already resources within the Christian tradition for a critique of racism, and that one need not go for this you know, this novel and, and extreme uh, version of anti-racism, what calls itself anti-racism, known as critical race theory. So informing oneself about both the content of both traditional Christian teaching on racism and also critical race theory is crucial. And that's why I wrote the book. This is actually not, it's not a topic that I um, think a lot about. It's not one I find very pleasant. It's actually probably the work on this book was more unpleasant than the work on any other book I've done, because reading a lot of this literature is just, it's kind of a depressing experience, um, because the ideas are so negative and um, so irrational um, that you, you just feel kind of spiritually drained reading it. But I think there's just too many people who aren't aware of what uh, critical race theory has to say. So I wanted to put it all together with generous quotes from actual writers so people can see how radical these ideas are and put it into kind of a nice accessible package that people would be able to inform themselves with. So I think informing themselves is the, is the first step and then uh, implementing it and both preaching what the church has traditionally taught about the evil of racism while at the same time showing that the critical, the alleged critical race theory solution is no solution at all and will only make things worse. And it's, it's you know, it's parallel to the church's um, reaction to uh, socialism and Marxism in the 19th and 20th centuries. The church didn't deny for a moment that there were genuine problems that socialism and Marxism claimed to be the solution to. But the church said, look, first and foremost, we have to make it clear, those are not genuine solutions. They just make things worse. Now, here is a more realistic set of principles to solve the problem. And then the result of that was the development of modern Catholic social teaching and the principles of uh, encyclicals like Rerum Novarum and Pope John Paul II's um, social encyclicals. And in the same way, uh, I think Catholics, bishops, churchmen in general, need to take the same sort of approach to matters of race, both focusing on what the church has traditionally said about these matters and seeing that there's a foundation there for a sober, responsible critique of racism and explaining why critical race theory is a false solution, just like Marxism was a false solution to uh, economic problems. And, and Bishop, you brought up uh, something about that this is not like traditional Christian thought. Uh, and I think it's important to know that Ibrahim Kendi said that only a liberation Christ is acceptable 
and the Savior Christ is not. That he rejects Christ as a Savior. Uh, I don't know if you, uh, I know that you've read this material yourself. Do, do you uh, have any comment on that? Well, see, I find that Antichrist, and uh, respectfully, we're talking about to inform one another of the knowledge of it. But Kendi says, even though you have knowledge without power, his quote was changing minds, you know, is not a movement. Changing mind is not activism. An activist produces power and policy change, not mental change. The church is about getting people to become aware. But I agree with Kendi, like I said, maybe my activist background, we must aggressively counter the moves of CRT. And I was asking, how do we aggressively counter it other than knowledge that gives power, but activism that we can do something? Perhaps the church needs mm -hmm. to increase its power. One, one of the things, Ed, that you mention in the, that last chapter of your book is that the, the church in its documents on, against racism and against liberation theology made it very clear that our goal is reconciliation in a place like South Africa, for instance. They used, you mentioned that example, that when reconciliation takes place, seeking the conversion of racists to understand the dignity of people they once oppressed and of the once oppressed people to see the inherent dignity of their oppressors with hope that Christ can convert them and change them. This is uh, that mutual kind of background that leaders in the church need to promote. Yes, you find, I mean, one of the most disturbing things about critical race theory and its rhetoric is how relentlessly bitter and unforgiving it is, you might say. And this this uh, goes contrary to what the church herself has repeatedly emphasized in, in uh, teaching about matters of race. And you made reference to uh, a document that I quote at some length in the book um, uh, that the church issued uh, on matters of racism. I try to remember the, the name of it. It's I, I don't know if it's the church and racism or something like that. But anyway, I quoted it at length in the book. Um, where the church emphasizes and gives the situation in South Africa at the time, this was during the late 1980s, as an example of how those who oppose uh, racism and those who oppose racist policies, like the ones that uh, prevailed in South Africa at the time, have to be on guard against, against um, any sort of retributive spirit or a spirit of sort of getting even and, and, and vindictiveness and, and actual hatred of or hostility or vengefulness toward uh, the perpetrators of racism. And of course, this is exactly what the church would say about sin in general. Church exists to forgive the sinner and to reform the sinner, not to uh, get revenge against the sinner. Mm -hmm. um, and so if that's true of sin in general, it can hardly be less true of um, uh, sins involving racism. Um, another point I wanted to make in response to um, uh, what, the, what the questioner said quite rightly um, is that in responding to critical uh, race theory, I think it's very important that uh, Christians not let themselves be cowed by it or sort of um, uh, put in a defensive position. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned, Father, at the beginning of the show 
uh, my book, The Last Superstition, which is, you know, 15 years ago. It's hard to believe it's been that long ago. But one of the things that really was central to the new atheism, which is kind of a spent force now, but at the time, you know, was quite influential in the, uh, the, the mid to, to, to late 2000s, was that even though the intellectual content of it was very flimsy, uh, by contrast, it was extremely self-confident in its rhetoric, so much so that religious believers sort of fell on the defensive, that somehow even to be religious was somehow per se irrational or contrary to science or what have you. And you see a similar phenomenon with critical race theory writers, that on the one hand, the intellectual content is very flimsy. The arguments are no good. <clears throat> There's very little appeal to argument. A lot of it is just rhetoric and abuse flung at, uh, flung at the reader. Anyone who dares to disagree is simply labeled a racist. But at the same time, there's an extreme rhetorical self-confidence. And so when people approach critical race theory in this kind of um, apologetic spirit, as if they're, you know, they, they regret they even have to disagree with it, and they're on defense, and they're constantly apologizing for their alleged racism and so on, that just emboldens. The, this radical movement, which is built on its self-confident rhetoric, just as the new atheism was. So I think that in responding to it, part of what's crucial <clears throat> is that one not be cowed by it, one not be intimidated by it, but meet it with equal and opposite rhetorical force and condemn it in no uncertain terms, rather than pretending that somehow uh, you know, Christians can do business with critical race theory any more than Christians could do business with Marxism. Right, right. I have another guest as well. <clears throat> Pastor Randy Williams uh, has a Parkway <clears throat> Church uh, in a Ro Roebuck section here of uh, Birmingham. And like Bishop Lowe's church, both of them are racially integrated, parishioners uh, African-American and, uh, and Caucasian. So uh, this is part of our world here. Uh, but you had some questions as well, Pastor Randy. I do. I, uh, Dr. Ed, if you could just give me a little feedback on this statement. Would this be true, that critical race theory is a self-defeating rational argument? I think that is the case, and for reasons that we referred to in our discussion a little while ago, which is that it's part of the very core of the critical race theory worldview that we cannot transcend race, that there really are no standards beyond race by reference to which we can judge different perspectives and different points of view. Now, if you're going to say that, and if you're also going to say, as uh, writers in the critical race theory tradition do, under the influence of philosophers like uh, Michel Foucault, who you know likes to analyze social institutions in terms of the power relationships that they, that they allegedly reflect, so that everything is really just an expression of power, and it's got no intellectual foundation, that the alleged intellectual foundation is really just a smokescreen for some sinister power interest. Well, if that's true, <clears throat> then that's true of critical race theory itself, just as, as it is of uh, anything that any worldview that the critical race theorist wants to criticize. So in that way, the whole position is self-defeating. If there's no objective standard of uh, true and false apart from the racial lens that one looks through, then critical race theory can't be regarded as any more true than any other sort of view. If every view is ultimately just an expression of power and it's got no objective foundation, then that would be as true of critical race theory itself. It would just be the expression of a desire for power on the part of critical race theorists. So in that way, the view is, is indeed self-refuting or self-defeating. Does that help? Yes. Yeah. 
It would seem the discussion belongs at the university level. However, we see it clear down into the grade school level. So my question would be, how do we engage the local school board in this issue and how do we counteract this movement? Mm -hmm. I, I think that that is a key thing because when it gets to the level of the elementary school, <clears throat> you're talking not about training children in critical thinking, but it it's becomes propaganda at that point. So how do we address school boards on the presence of critical race theory? One of the crucial uh, factors in doing this is to see through and resist the, the, the marketing propaganda that critical race theorists uh, deploy when dealing with precisely this issue. So one of the talking points you hear is that, oh, critical race theory, it, what it is, it's, a, it's an abstract intellectual uh, theory that no one who hasn't gone to law school would even be aware of. And so that this idea that it's being peddled in high schools and in grade school and so forth is, is just silly. That's a talking point. It's completely false. The truth in it, the grain of truth in it, is that critical race theory did indeed begin as an academic legal theory that wouldn't have been familiar to anybody uh, who wasn't uh, teaching in a law school or a student in a law school. But before long, uh, throughout the 70s and into the 80s, it spread be well beyond that. And uh, writers on critical race theory themselves will tell you this, that it soon became uh, a more wide-ranging movement that had an influence on all the humanities in the social sciences, in education and schools of education and so on, and that it does indeed inform uh, the training of people who are, who are educated in uh, social science, humanities, and education programs, and then go on to become professors, uh, high school and grade school teachers, and so on and so forth. So knowing, for one thing, that this is indeed the case, and knowing what it entails, uh, educating oneself about the actual content of critical race theory is absolutely crucial. And also, uh, I, would, I would say, in resisting it, one has to be just as uncompromising as critical race theory itself is. Critical race theory is not about compromise. It's about power. It likes to put itself outside of the kind of bargaining and back and forth of normal politics. It simply says, our position is just, your position is evil, you must simply submit to our demand. So of its very nature, it's a kind of totalitarian ideology that is not itself going to compromise and thus cannot be compromised with. And this, this means that there's hard work to be done. I think a lot of people see this, which is, by, which is why um, uh, school boards have are increasingly been seen as crucial to, uh, to battling this sort of thing. Uh, but I think parents need to get more involved. They need to resist this. They need to raise their voices about it. They need to make themselves um, difficult, as it were, at school board meetings and the like to make it clear that they will simply not accept this. And there are no doubt lots of administrators who aren't necessarily sympathetic to it, but they feel cowed, they feel intimidated by the activists. And so they need to, be, they need, they need to feel no less intimidated by parents who will not put up with this so that the tide can turn against it. And I think one of the points that you bring up is that what is at stake is the way children are indoctrinated by what comes across as intellectual mm -hmm. bullyism, that mm -hmm. they're, bring, they're acting like bullies, that you, 
inherently cannot disagree with them because your disagreement proves you're already a racist. Mm -hmm. And to use that and to instill guilt in children and other people so that they become perilous and just have to do whatever you say is handing over power by manipulation through guilt. And parents have to teach their children principles of the inherent dignity of people of all races, whether it's their own race or other races. All are created with inherent dignity by their ability to think and to make free will choices. And to stand up for that is not racist. This is being human. And I think that's a very key thing. So, um, yeah, that, I think you're absolutely right. You, when you have bullies in the playground, you walk slowly towards them and watch them back off. That's the general way. I want to thank you, A, for writing this book. I want to let people again know it's called All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. It's by our guest, uh, Dr. Edward Faser. You can get the, a copy of this book from EWTNRC.com, our religious catalog, and it is item number 45801. You can also find out more about Dr. Fazer's work at his website. It's edwardfazer.com. Um, that you can go online, find out other things. That, uh, I like it that you're going after the atheists and not critical race theory. Appreciate that. Uh, having gone after a few windmills myself over the years, it's good to see you youngsters doing it. Also, my good friends, um, Bishop James Lowe and Pastor Randy Williams, we are part of a group known as the Gatekeepers, ministers who try to keep an eye on the injustices going on in our area. Thank you all for being with us tonight. I'm afraid that we've run out of time, uh, but I want to give you all a blessing. May Almighty God bless you and keep you and fill you with his peace and guide you by his peace. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you guests like Dr. Facer and our, my friends from the Gatekeepers and all the other programs that we have here only because the network is brought to you by you. So please keep us in between your gas bill your electric bill, and your cable bill. And then we'll be able to pay all of our bills too. God bless you and thank you.